In my first career, I was an F-16 pilot for the Israeli Air Force. An F-16 is, is a bird made of metal. It's just so aerodynamic. It's such a graceful thing in the sky. It's amazing. It pushes you to the limit every single day because you're surrounded by people who push themselves to the limit every single day and you're competing with them. That then translates very well to being a successful business person. I think the combination of community creation as a way to create value, create relationships, and grow businesses through thought leadership while sharing it, sharing the journey with your audience is the next big thing in marketing. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I am your host, Nikki Ballou, and boy, do we have a great guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is one of the leading thinkers in the space to help CEOs of companies create a CEO thought leader brand for themselves and use that to propel themselves and their businesses into massive scaling. His thinking about this is original, it is brilliant, and it's a ton of fun to talk about. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Isar Matis. Welcome to the show, Isar. Oh my God, Nikki! After this opening, I can only disappoint everybody. I think, but maybe we should stop here. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was awesome. <laughs> Glad you liked it. Glad you liked it. So you know, on this show, we're known for having the best introductions in the world. You ever watch UFC? Yes. You know the um, the announcer, Bruce Buffer. I'm the Bruce Buffer of podcast guest introductions. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so That's awesome. great to have you on the show. You and I have become friends over the last little while, but my listeners don't know who you are and they listen to the show because they want to learn from you. But before they can learn from you, these men and women, these champions of freedom, these entrepreneurs, these great, amazing human beings, they got to get to know you and fall in love with you and your backstory. So tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great Esar Matis? Wow. Uh, so I started my career, my first, I had like several different weird careers and re really sharp turns in between. So in my first career, I was an F-16 pilot for the Israeli Air Force. I've done that for over a decade. And I ended that by being an instructor at the Air Force Academy. So I've done that like for just over gun? two years. Yeah, kind of, sort of, yeah. Kind of, sort and... of, yeah. Dude, you know how cool that is? <laughs> Listen, it's uh, it's an amazing thing to do. First of all, it's a great, fun experience, but it teaches you so many things, which if you want, we can touch on later on. on yes. You know, things you learn from being, I think, anywhere in active military, but definitely a fighter pilot. So there's a lot of stuff you can learn for life from that. But 
So I've done that. Then I left the Air Force, joined a small training and simulation startup out of Israel. Spent a few good years there, almost a decade again. Uh, started in project management, then moved to sales and marketing. Then with that company, moved to the US. We took that company public. And then I left that company, did an executive MBA, started my own startup, did, uh, let's call it affiliate marketing, even though it's not exactly, but it was a, a SaaS platform around the world of affiliate marketing. And through that, I got to know my main investor. We became very good friends, started to work in his company again, started a little incubator. We didn't call it that, but that's what it was. Started my own little startup within his bigger company. That was a travel uh, B2C e-commerce platform that we de we've developed. Uh, he had a large wholesale travel company. Then the large company got sold. And then I started doing what I was doing today, which we're talking about, which is helping companies develop thought leadership. So this is my journey in 60 seconds or maybe a little more. Boom, brother. Boom. So let's talk about being an F-16 fighter pilot. What the heck was that like? What's it like to fly those planes? It's it's awesome, right? It's It's one of those things that you feel very aware and privileged as you're doing it, that it's fun and extreme and it pushes you to the limit every single day because you're surrounded by people who push themselves to the limit every single day and you're competing with them. So it's a very, on one hand, very strong camaraderie between the people in the squadron. On the other hand, extremely um, you know, competitive environment because everybody wants to be the best. And so it's it's a it's a great place to be. It's a great place to be. So, I mean, you're inside that plane, you're flying at what Mach three, right? What's the sensation of flying at Mach three, being in charge of this badass freaking military plane that can blow shit up? <laughs> so I'll tell you something interesting when you when you're in it. By the way, it's the same thing with cars, right? If if you take, I don't know if you've ever been on the autobahn in Germany, no speed yeah. limit, right? You can go yeah. 250 kilometers an hour, I love it. which is whatever. You can you go whatever speed the car will allow you to go. And so you you can cruise at 200 miles an hour if you have a high-end Porsche, and that's okay. That's legitimate. If you're driving at high speeds on a nice road in a good car, there's no sensation of speed. You, once your brain gets used to it, it gets used to it, and that's it. You don't feel as like you're going fast. What you do feel is acceleration. You feel the corners. You feel the G-forces. These are the stuff you're really feeling. So going really fast on a jet, especially when you're further higher up, so there's no, you don't see trees moving next to you like you see on the road, right? It's like, you can move. By the way, nobody goes that fast. Like an F-16 goes 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 Mach number, uh, nobody goes faster fast than that. Enough, <laughs> no, no, it is. It, I'm not saying it's very, very fast. What I'm saying, the fun stuff is either fly, flying really low altitude and then you really feel the speed, or the maneuvering of the of the platform, which which then you feel the g forces, you feel the acceleration, you feel, and, and it's a wonderful machine. You know, an F-16 is is a bird made of metal. It's just so aerodynamic. It's such a graceful thing in the sky. It's amazing. Wow, and so. You flew those. How long did you fly F-16s in the Israeli Air Force for? Probably about a decade. So, yeah, Damn. about a decade. Some of it in as enlisted, and then some of it as a reservist. I stayed uh, for a few more years before I moved to the U.S. So, 
what made you decide to go become an instructor and train the next generation of fighter pilots? Uh, it's part of the it's part of the journey in the Israeli Air Force. You at a certain point in your career, you either branch off to do some kind of a of a desk work at headquarters, or become an instructor. I chose to be an instructor. I think it's a lot more fun. I enjoy teaching and mentoring so much to this day that it was an obvious choice for me which one I wanted, and the opportunity was there, so I went and did it. One of the most rewarding times of my life was being an instructor at flight school. So here's my next obvious question. When are you going to write your book about those experiences? Uh, I think the book should be, we talked about this a little bit, but I think the book should be about what experiences you get and what skills you learn being active, let's call it fighting military, that then translates very well to being a successful business person. Agreed, but many, I think you, many, you've got to have the fact others. that you were a fighter pilot and an instructor <laughs> in the book, in the title. It's going to have a lot more, um, I think, cachet and going to attract a lot more people to it to do that. But absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, you're the author. I, I don't know anything. I'm telling you, you got to do I it. I know man. how to like read I, books. I'm I, really I, good at reading books. I, you write this book, brother? <laughs> it's... <laughs> We got to get you to write this book, man. We got to work together and get this book out. This is going to be a great book. I mean, you tell some good stories and the stories then get translated into the lessons at the end of the yeah. day. That's what you ought to do, right? Stories, lessons, yeah, lessons, yeah. stories, and all that jazz. Yeah. But I, I think it's fantastic, man. Um, it's one of the coolest things any guest that's ever been on this show has ever spoken about. <laughs> I've never had someone come on this show and talk about being an F-16 fighter pilot or being a top gun level instructor, man. <laughs> Meet the real top gun. That's that's That would be the title of the episode. Meet the real top gun. Isar Metis. What flying F-16s taught me about scaling businesses. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, um, yeah it's That's a great, great title for an episode and a great great title for a fantastic book that i think will take you lots of great places so okay so you did that and what made you get out of the military and go into business why uh the the reality was it's it's all about timing right so we're talking about 1999 is was you know you have these checkpoints in your military career where you can branch off and leave it's not like you can choose to leave whenever you i had to serve through 99 that was kind of like i was signed up and that was like my first potential exit and if you remember 99 was the biggest dot com boom yep. it was before it collapsed in 2000 so <laughs> it seemed that everybody was becoming millionaires by having these talk options in tech companies. Yeah. And in the military, I was making an okay salary, but I didn't have to give that up, right? I kept on flying reserve in the military, so I could still be an F-16 pilot. And what I thought then, become a millionaire by, by having stock options in a tech startup. So I left to join a small tech startup. That's what I did. That's pretty smart. Okay. Tell us the story of the first startup. What happened through that? What you learned? What are the what are the big lessons you got out of that experience? So the first startup was was a training and simulation startup. It was very unique because back then, and again, now I'm going to date myself. I already did because I said it was 1999. But uh, every simulation was running on like big silicon graphics computers, huge servers, stupidly expensive. 
and PCs were just starting to almost be good enough. And we said, we're going to do professional training and simulation on a PC. And in the first two years, we were the joke of the industry because everybody said, this will never going to work. Obviously, today, it's what everybody's doing. But back then, it was very, very unique. And it, it required a lot of belief in, in what we did and a lot of grit in doing what we were doing to actually show the world that we were serious. We're actually doing stuff that provides real value to actual operators. And it started with pilot training, right? So that was like step one. Uh, then we branched off to a lot of other things. But we were able to build a really unique solution. And I think the if you want the two biggest learnings from there, from that process, one is try to be different. So we could have competed with everybody on, on their turf. We would have lost big time because it's companies with much bigger budgets, with a lot more experience, with connections in the industry. And we came and did something very, very different. Not just the fact that we used a inferior but way cheaper hardware, but the approach. The approach was, instead of giving you a simulation, I'm going to give you a teaching tool, something that can help you through basic steps that you need to go through in your training. It's not going to replace the bigger simulator. It's going to be a complementary solution that can help you save a lot of time, save a lot of money, and use a simulator just for bigger things. So the mindset was very different. So that was one thing that was a big learning to me, that you can compete in any market, if you approach it in a different way, even if it's saturated and mature and has really big players in it. So that's number one. Number two that I've learned is we were trying in the beginning to do everything ourselves and mm. it didn't work. And then we figured out that we don't have the budgets, the manpower, the, the skills even in-house to compete with some of the bigger players. And we completely changed our strategy and developed a platform that other people can use to develop the solutions. So instead of becoming a solution provider, we became a platform provider that then anybody in the training and simulation market can use our tools to, again, complement solutions they already have and do it faster, quicker, with more value to the customers. So understanding that, again, you don't have to, quote unquote, fight against your competition. If you find a way to give them a way to be better at what they do, now you have an amazing teaming opportunities. And again, you accelerate your entry into a market that otherwise you have much smaller chances of entering. So these are maybe my two biggest learnings from, from that experience. Okay. So you exited that opportunity. What made you exit it? And, and uh, what, what did exiting teach you? So, you know, the I left there for, for two main reasons. Reason yep. number one was the CEO of the company was a very negative personality. He was very harsh with everybody. He kept everybody in their spots, kind of like stay in that box, don't go beyond that or else. And it just wasn't a healthy environment. And yet I'd stayed there for very long because I really enjoyed the team and I really liked the product that we had and so on. So that was number one. Number two is I... Now I'm jumping to 2007. I bought a house in the US about three and a half seconds before the market collapsed. And I literally lost my entire life savings, like down to the last penny. I didn't have any 401k. I didn't have any savings. I had $7,000 in the bank. 
and that's it. This was everything I owned. And I was at then, back then, $270,000 in debt. So I was stressed beyond what I can describe. I was in a foreign country. So again, I was in the US, no real support group around me because it was it was, was like my second year here or maybe third, but no support team, no money, and a job that paid me just barely to pay the bills. And I'm like, I'm never digging myself out of this hole. I didn't sleep for six months. And I knew that I got to make something different in order to change the trajectory I'm on. Because otherwise, I, I my, again, looking back, it's like, okay, it was only $270,000. Back then, $270,000 seemed like, if you ask me today, okay, now you have $200 million in debt. I'm like, it's an amount that was impossible for me to imagine how can I ever pay back. So my way out of it was to understand that I cannot keep on doing what I'm doing because then nothing will change. I took a student loan, which increased my debt. But again, at that point, it didn't make a difference. For me, $270,000 or $330,000 seemed the same impossible amount to ever pay back. So I took student loans, did an executive MBA. And then when the opportunity presented itself, I started my own startup. So this was me trying to put myself on a different trajectory to get out of the situation I put myself in. So you started your own startup. Talk about that. You, 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 it looked like when you're up against it, adversity's there. It really brings out the best in you, right? It, it, it seems to yeah. be um, a trait that a lot of the most successful people have. You don't, comfort isn't what propels you forward. It's a lack of comfort is what propels you forward. Fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's uh, that situation that I was in really was the biggest driver. Like I knew I had to do something or I will forever be in this position that I was, which which is a lot of debt, no extra money to do anything else that I wanted to do. And so I, I was looking for stuff to do. And while I was still in the executive MBA, I started running with different ideas in my head of what I want to do next. And one of them, you know, I, I started playing with some of them and stayed with two or three. And one of the ideas I took to a guy I knew from the local community as a person I really trusted, a very successful business person, but also somebody I considered a trustworthy person that I knew from the community. And I went for him for advice. Like I said, listen, I have this idea. I want your feedback. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it worth doing? Do you think it has legs to stand on because I'm going to risk you know, my my life literally on this thing? And after the meeting, he's like, I'll pay you to do it. Like, wow. this fits like a glove to some things I have in my drawer. I want you to take the two things, merge them together, and I will be your investor. And this was one of the weirdest conversations because I was planning to figure out how to raise money and planning for months of you know, running around, trying to, and this was one, I had other conversations like this, but I had very few. And now I had somebody who believed in me, who believed in the idea and was willing to finance this process. So it was a very enlightening moment where if you have a good idea and you are willing to commit to it and you talk to the right people, you will get their support. And again, this, I might've been lucky, but I think it's more than luck. I think it's being committed to a great idea and talking to the right people. 
you know, luck, um, you make your own luck. Luck sure. doesn't just hit you over the head. You know, you make your own luck. And the good Lord helps those who helps themselves. Right? There's no question that that's true. It just made me think. There's someone I ought to introduce you to. We'll talk about it offline. He's got an interesting startup. I think you two ought to talk. Uh, he's actually Israeli uh, as well. Uh, here I in would, Toronto. I would gladly. Gladly. His name is... His name's Tom. Um, I'll, we'll, we'll chat offline, but he's got a really interesting, super interesting uh, company that he's trying to get off the ground right now. And uh, he's really good at a lot of things, but raising money ain't one of them. He's sucking at it right now. He's brutal at it. Um, yeah. uh, what's really interesting about this about guy is he's very handy. You know what I mean? So like he 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 had this startup. He's got you know he's eating through his savings. And I said, dude, why don't you do 20 hours a week worth of this handy stuff you're at, right? He's going, well, who's going to who's gonna hire me to do this stuff, right? Because he's really good. I said, I will. I said, come to my house. My my sink uh, pipes are stuck. The water's like pouring in. It's yeah, not yeah. going down. And um, I got a few other things I need you to do too. Like, you, you know, the, the kids have destroyed their closet door handle and things like that. I said, fix it. <laughs> so he came and he fixed it. And I said, here, here's some money. Thank you. God bless you. But uh, he, he, like his vision for the business is huge, but he's he's got to figure this out. Yeah, yeah. But okay. So <laughs> adversity took you forward. You had conversations. You had a conversation with the right fellow. He funded you. What happens after that? You get the business going and you take it to the point of exit. What made you decide to exit that business? <laughs> That business, I actually didn't exit. So this was a really weird set. What happened was actually really weird because I, I'll make the long story short, but a few months after we started that business, there was already a CTO in place. There was already a head of product. We started designing stuff. We started developing it. Him and his number two in his company. So he was running a large travel company, shows up at my office and they're like, we have a in theory, an e-commerce business. So they were doing wholesale travel. We have, in theory, an e-commerce business. We have the brand name. We have the website. We don't have anybody who's running it. And it's a huge opportunity that we've tried with several different people. We really like how you approach your startup. We want you to do the same thing in our business, running our e-commerce platform. And I, my answer was, you know you're paying me to run this business. Like, I, do we stop? He said, no, you can do both. Like, you're a smart guy. So for a while, I was running both businesses. I was running my startup that was called People Post, and I was starting to work on Last Minute Travel, which was the e-commerce brand of his company. And because one is more of a mature thing and within a bigger company with the right resources and right connections, more and more of my attention went to the travel side and less and less of my attention went to the other side. It ended up with us hiring another CEO to actually run the startup. And, but, but I always say that that me moving to run also last minute travel was first nailing the coffin of my startup just because of my attention span. It was totally on me and eventually got to the point that last minute travel grew at that point to almost $100 million in sales. Whoa. And the other business was not even taking off yet, so we just decided to shut it off. So okay, that that my startup never actually grew to anything, never generated revenue. We developed a very interesting product, but we okay, didn't even it. take it to market. 
And again, mostly on me. It was my fault that I was not attentive to it. And it was my fault that it was dragging. And then we just decided jointly that it's not worth pouring more money on it when we have something that generates $100 million on the other side and that we can focus on and grow further. So that's what happened to, to the startup. Okay. So you you essentially became a CEO for hire in that other company? Basically. So how long did you stay with that company for? Uh, almost 10 years. I think nine or 10 years. Wow. What made you leave and- them? So we got we got acquired. So the 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 company got bought out and went by a private equity firm that bought us and our three largest our two largest competitors. So we were the biggest in the US, number 3 in the world in wholesale travel, and the two other companies were European, one from the UK and one from Spain, and they were bigger than us. And a private equity company came and bought all three companies to merge them into one gigantic wholesale company to have even more leverage than we had before and stop the fighting between the three biggest players to create a really big group. And through that merger, you know, the first thing that happens is I was in charge of the e-commerce platform for my company, so for Tariqa Holidays, but the other two companies had each at least one e-commerce platform that they've developed or inherited or acquired, like depending on the setup. And so there were like four or five different e-commerce platforms in the mix and a lot of invest, a lot of uh, consultants, you know, Boston Consulting Group, Ernest & Young, McKinsey, all these guys uh, getting written very, very big checks to help you through the integration. And the first thing we had to figure out is which e-commerce platform survives the merger. Now this, again, going back to my, my background, you put me in a competition I switched to a whole different mode. And so I told my guys, like, we're winning this. Like, we're going to be the selected platform. And it took a very, very long time because we won round one of the evaluation. And then one of the other companies said, what, are you kidding me? There are like 20 people in the in this group. They invested $2 million. We have like 100 people and we invested $30 million. Their platform can't be better. So they threw that to the trash. And then we did it again with a different group of consultants and wrote them another half a million dollar check. And then we came on top again. And then the other group said, well, you know, it doesn't make sense. Blah, blah, blah. It took, I don't know, like nine months to decide that we are the winning platform, that that the whole joint group is going to use our e-commerce solution. But then they came and said, but you can't have your own little startup within this company. It's not going to work. So your marketing people are going to report to marketing. Your development team is going to report to the IT group. Your uh, product is going to report to product and so on. And I... I didn't know if to laugh or to cry. I said, the reason we're better than the other solutions you have is because we're running like a startup. That's why it spent only $2 million and developed a better solution. You break that up, you lose the whole value that you that we now spent nine months and probably $1.5 million of consultants to to select. Oh and they're like, God. and they're like, well, it's not going to happen. There's no point finding about it. This is what's going to happen. And I'm like, okay, then I'm out. And they told me, well, you can't be out. We just selected you. I'm like, no, no, you didn't because you don't want what I, A, know how to do and B, like doing. So if you want each of these departments to report to the corporate department, it's not going to work. So I don't want to be a part of it. Long story short, I stayed for nine months, helped them build, knowing that I'm leaving. Like Both sides knew that this is a path for me to get out. 
helped them build it the way they wanted it, hired a replacement, trained him, did the whole handshake thing, and then left. So it was, I always joke that it was the, the longest, uh, you know, uh, resignation notice ever because <laughs> I told them that I'm quitting and I stayed for nine months. <laughs> So when that happened, what did you do next? So then I then I was bored. I didn't have, uh, you know, I left uh, a really fancy title with a really big team with international people all over the place. And and I left for nothing because I didn't jump ship. I didn't have anything waiting for me on the outside. Yeah. And, and the thing I was missing the most is talking to business people, you know, talking, having business conversations because now I didn't have a business for the first time in a very, very, very long time. Yeah. And... And I like listening to podcasts. So I listen to a lot of business podcasts. I'm like, those people get to talk to a lot of interesting business people. Why won't I start my own podcast? And that's how I'll get to talk to interesting yeah, business people. Business so I had people. no no motive other than having interesting business conversations. And I started the podcast. And I did that for a while, a very short while. So I don't know, I had 10 episodes and... All of them were like friends and family, right? It's like, well, not family, but people I knew, you know, tech startup from Israel, you get, a, you know, a lot of relevant people. Yeah. But it felt ridiculous. I'm like, I got to start interviewing people outside my, you know, inner circle or comfort zone if I want a serious podcast. Also, I need people without thick Israeli accents in the podcast if I want to cater to the US audience. So... And at the same time, I was listening to a TED Talk by this guy, Isaac Litsky, and he has an incredible life story, an incredible entrepreneurial story. I'm like, I want to interview him. He's going to be the first person I interview out of the people that I know, either first or second connections. And I reached out to him on LinkedIn. And within a day or two, I got a response and said, yeah, I'll gladly do it. When? How do we schedule this? And, you know, in the first second, I'm like, oh, my God, this is awesome. I get to interview like, and then I've learned he's a really big deal. Like he's been on every big TV show, you know, uh, Tonight Show, these kind of shows. He gets paid a lot of money to speak on stages all, all over the world. Like he's a big deal. And I was nobody. I had 10 episodes and my siblings and my wife was listening to my podcast. That's it. <laughs> and he said, yes. And this blew my mind because before that, I was running a $100 million business and there was enough people that didn't see me, didn't want to see me or talk to me because I wasn't important enough. And now I'm no one. I'm literally a nobody. I have a podcast with seven episodes live, 10 recorded, zero listenership. And this guy agrees to talk to me. How does that make any sense? Yeah. And that led me through a path. I'm like, I'm like this, the access it gives is incredible. It's nothing like I've ever seen before as a marketing slash sales uh, motion. Yeah. And I'm like, how do I leverage this to, to grow a business? And then I thought to myself, if I figure this out, other people did because people have been podcasting for 10 years. I can't be the only guy who figured this out. So I started looking for people who figured it out. And I interviewed them to my podcast. I went on their podcast, did my research. And one of them uh, became my business partner. So one of them is a guy I met before that at PodFest. We hooked up, had a really great time together. Uh, didn't nothing more than that. But now that he understood that I understood what he was doing, he had a great idea, but no real understanding how to turn it into a scalable business. And I came with knowledge on how to scale businesses without a deep understanding of what he was doing. So it was a perfect fit. 
So we started a company to help other businesses build relationships, create, build communities, nurture these communities and those relationships as a growth lever for the business through, let's call it live podcasting. So podcasting with a live audience that you can actually talk to other people more than just your guest. And that's what, what I've done in the last two and a half years. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. So in your opinion, why is it important for a CEO to develop his own brand and to take that brand and use it to help grow his company's brand? Wow. Um, this could be a whole series of podcasts that we can do on what you just asked, but I'll try to give you a short, a short, keep it, to, keep it to five minutes for now. Cause I think we yeah, can no do problem. this and we should probably do this. I, I'd actually think it'd be fun for you and I to do a few of these. I would love that, but I, I, I will really give the 30,000 foot answer. The, there are several different reasons. Reason number one is that Mo let's talk B2B business first, right? Because this is kind of like where it's more helpful. B2B business is built around any business, but B2B business more is built around trust, meaning people need to believe that you have a solution that they need and they need to believe that you'll stand behind your word to help them on the thing you said that you're going to help them. So that's number one. So it requires a level of relationship with the people who will do business with you. Yes. You develop trust and relationship through many different motions, but the number one thing, any relationship in the world, any relationship, personal relationships, romantic relationships, business relationships are built around co-creation of value. The relationship has to provide value to both sides or eventually it will cease to exist. So Correct. you need to co-create value. Correct. If you find a way to co-create value with your target audience that you want to do business with, it's magical. The problem with that is it takes a lot of time. So yes, if you're a busy CEO, you will spend time taking people to dinner. You will spend time hosting people on different things. You will spend time on retreats with the right people you want to do business with. You will come to one day for big trade shows where the rest of the company is to meet with two or three people that are big deal. But you can't do that all the time. So it's very hard to scale relationship building. So how do companies scale relationship building? They put, they put in place a sales team. So now every salesperson can have 10 relationships, 20 relationships, 50 relationships with the right tech, 150 relationships. Now you reach your 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 cap, you just add another salesperson, right. which by itself creates a lot of overhead because now every sales, every five salespeople need a manager, every three of those needs you know a director and so on and so forth. So it's a lot of overhead to grow a business that way, but it's understood by everybody that that's the way because you need the relationship with the client. If you can build your own brand, if you can go live and have a conversation regularly with your audience, as a CEO, as the head of the company, you gain amazing benefits. Benefit number one is you get to truly understand the gaps, the needs, the wants of your clients because they're asking you questions. 
So you know what's really top of mind for them. You know what's Monday morning problems. You know the language they use to describe the problem. Not what you want to put on your website, but what they actually use. So it's an incredible mechanism to really learn about your clients. It's an amazing mechanism to get feedback because now you're having a conversation every week or every other week with your prospects and clients and you learn what they actually need and you learn how to describe the thing that they need in a way that they would want to have it. So that's number one. Number two is you get to have them see the world through your lens. If you continuously tell the story through the way you see the world, and I talked about in the beginning that being different is better than being the better, right? So if you can show that you have a different point of view, if you can continuously hammer that point of view and saying, here is where the rest of the world see it in a different way, and I think my way is better, some of the people will shift to your point of view. Once they shift to your point of view, they're your clients. That's it. Because now you're a category of one. Now you're it. There is no competition because you're the one that showed them that there's a different way to do things than what everybody else is doing. So you get the ability by building your own brand to create the mindset, the reality for the people that you want to have that reality, to see the world through your lens, which is extremely powerful. And the third thing we already talked about, you get to build actual relationships. You get to talk to people, you know them by Super name. Important. And there's, it requires a process. Like it, it requires being very intentional about building relationships versus just broadcasting. It's two very, very different things, even though the outcome could be a podcast, right? So what we did for these companies, in addition to building the strategy on what you want to talk about, at what frequency, on what platforms, what points you should touch, uh, what are the actual topics you want to hit, what guests you want to bring on board. We help them with all of that. But in addition, we help them produce the actual show and create content on the back end. So on the back end of the live show with the audience, you get a podcast, you get a YouTube channel, you get short snippets on social media, you get uh, blog posts, you get all these things and as an outcome of investing one hour of the CEO time in actually learning what his customers are saying, what his prospects are having issues with, and having a conversation with them to really build a better solution that can serve them better while building relationships. And, and again, the outcome is now you have incredible amount of content and you don't have to worry about the content calendar and what we're going to produce and how we're going to produce it. All that goes away and you have extremely high value content, highly targeted. Why? because it's co-created with the people you're planning that would consume it. So this was my short answer. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, I've been doing thought leadership for coaches, consultants, solopreneurs, freelancers, all those kinds of people. And I, it's obvious why it's good for them because they're a brand of one, right? Yeah. But yeah. it's, it's been, something that I've been giving quite a bit of thought to in the last couple of years, especially in the last six months, in that I believe that a CEO actually needs, needs to have their own thought leader brand. In fact, it's even more important for them because I look at who are the CEOs that have 
created the most massive explosion of business value in the last three, four decades? Well, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Richard Branson. You think about these guys and their brands, right? Steve Jobs is bigger than Apple. I mean, Apple's great and all that jazz, but Steve Jobs is bigger than Apple. He's been dead since 2011. His brand is so powerful, it's still driving people to Apple. Because I guarantee you, Tim Cook ain't driving nobody to freaking Apple, okay? Not one individual. No one's going, I'm going to buy an Apple because Tim Cook's the CEO. But a ton of people said, I'm going to buy an Apple because Steve Jobs created and ran this company, right? And you look at Tesla. You look at um, Twitter now. Elon Musk, in the short term, lost a bunch of advertisers. But in the long term, I think Twitter is going to be worth 10 times what he paid for it because Elon Musk decided to get involved with Twitter. And if he ever takes Twitter public again, I'm going to line up to invest. <laughs> I bought I bought Tesla. I believe in Tesla. I believe Tesla is a great company. You know, and I know there's a lot of old school investors that go, well, Tesla's this, Tesla does not make money. I'm like, are you kidding? You're going to bet against Elon freaking Musk? Are you an idiot? You, you would never bet against that guy because Elon Musk is bigger than Tesla. He's bigger than Twitter. What makes people excited about working with the Steve Jobs, Elon Musk of this world? Well, first of all, obviously, people are excited about the products these folks put out and they they buy their products. Right, Elon Musk is doing this $8 a month blue check. I'm telling you, there's going to be 10, 20 million people who are going to do that $8 a month blue check, right? That guy's going to make a crap load of money from that. And secondly, you know, investors are going to want to invest in their companies. I put lots of money in Apple. I put lots of money in Tesla because of those two CEOs, CEO, thought leader brand, and employees flock to want to work there. Block having a powerful CEO brand allows you to generate more business, allows you to bring in top level talent, and brings investors to you in the biggest, most possible way in the world. That's why yeah. I'm excited about this. I think what you're doing is great. I'm interested in doing more of this myself. You know, I love the fact that you've got this keen, um, structural based way of, of putting it out there. Um, brother, I think it's, it's awesome. Keep doing it. Keep doing more of it. I know you're up to figuring out what's, what, what's next for you as well, but really appreciate you coming and sharing some of your wisdom. And I'd love to have this conversation with you and go deeper into some of these aspects as, uh, as time goes by. Absolutely. Listen, uh, I, I, I'm very passionate about this. I think it's the next, you know, I think the combination of community creation as a way to create value, create relationships and grow businesses through thought leadership while sharing it, sharing the journey with your audience is the next big thing in marketing. It's gonna, cause you know, the, the, the last big wave was content marketing. Everybody's doing content marketing. The, the market is crazy saturated and it's now about how can you stand out? How can you have a different point of view? And how can you share that point of view with the people that you care to share it with and have them feel a part of the process? And the way to do this is, is what we've just done in the last two and a half years is, is building a quote unquote media company around you as a person, around your brand as a business, 
And by having that media company, it allows you to connect with the right people, deliver the right message, and have people see the world through your lens. I just heard an interview this morning with a lady who used to uh, be a big deal in marketing in uh, Salesforce. So, you know, one of the largest brands in the world. And for a while there, she was in charge of their written articles in the Wall Street Journal. And like, why in the year of whatever, 2021, you would pay for written articles in anything? And she says that this was their way to influence the mindsets of CEOs because CEOs read the Wall Street Journal. And if you have a front page article once a month that they paid $7 million a year for, you can impact the way they see your segment, your business, your niche, and your company. Now, I want to say one thing that some people who are listening to this may think, well, you know, we talked about Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and, and, and Salesforce. This works at any level of business. Sure Some of our most successful clients were small businesses, uh, lawyers, financial consultants, people like that, that again, high touch, high relationship, high trust kind of businesses. It's gold. We had tech companies as our clients. We had real estate companies as our clients. It works in every industry because it's about human psychology. At the end of the day, we buy especially bigger investments from people we trust. And the best way to develop that trust is to have continuous conversations and keep on showing your point of view to the world. And then the people who align with it will want to be your clients. You won't have to sell anything to them. They will want to be your clients. I love it. I love it. So, so how can people find out more about you, get a hold of you, all that good stuff? Uh, if you want to, you know, we're, we're on a podcast right now. So they, if you want to listen to my podcast, it's the business growth accelerator. Uh, I've been running it for just over three years now. Actually, I'm, I, it's right about the three year birthday. I should probably do an episode about <laughs> like, like the birthday episode for the three year episode, but the business growth accelerator podcast is one. The easiest way to get a hold of me is on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So, uh, my name is Isar Metis. So it's I S A R. M-E-I-T-I-S. And yes, I have to spell it and pronounce it every time. But the benefit, there's only one of me on LinkedIn. So if you type my name on LinkedIn, you found me and I'll gladly connect. I will gladly chat with you. I love having business conversations. I love helping business people make their next move and grow. And so please reach out to me, send me a direct message and I'll connect with you and we see what we can do from there. Uh, and that's about it. And and be, before, before I leave, I want to say one more thing. Uh, find Nikki's podcast on whatever platform you're on. Give him a five-star review right while you're listening to this so other people get it. Share it with your friends. A lot of work goes into this and not a lot of people get it, but there's a lot of work and thought goes into having a podcast. And if you are enjoying it and you're getting value from it, share it and let people know that you're getting value from it. That's my last two sentences. <laughs> God bless your heart, man. Much appreciated. So listener, Isar Metis, is the real deal. The guy's amazing. His energy is infectious. Make sure that you go to the show notes. We're going to have everything that he uh, talked about in terms of how to get in touch with him in the show notes. So go to the show notes wherever you listen to the podcast, either on the podcast website, 
you know, you can access it from eCircleAcademy.com. There's a button that says podcast. You can access it at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com. You can go onto iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, all the places the podcasts are. I can't keep up with how many they are these days because <laughs> they just keep expanding yeah. and growing. But the, it's there. Take advantage of it. You know, get in touch with him. He's offered to connect with you on LinkedIn. I'm telling you, not everybody does that. So you should take advantage of him. This guy's brilliant. And uh, I believe your network's your net worth. So expand your network by one, connect with ESAR, and I think you're uh, you're going to be in good shape. And if what you've heard today makes sense to you, and if you're a coach or a consultant and you haven't really looked at thought leadership and how to take your thought leadership to the next level through things like podcasting, through things like writing books, through things like growing your network, because I think that's the big three, the trinity of how to scale your business as a coach or consultant is through podcasting, book writing, and through your own network, then you should make sure that you, you know, take detailed notes when you listen to this episode, go listen to some of our past episodes, go to our website, eCircleAcademy.com, take advantage of all the resources there, get it done. And the other thing is that um, if you love what ESAR is all about, definitely share the episode, encourage other people to listen to this and encourage other people to go and connect with him too. That's good. That's important. You'll be helping people. You'll be adding to the sum total of goodness in the world. When you connect with good people, you know what? You're adding to the sum total of goodness in the world. And when you help other people connect with good people, you're multiplying the sum total of goodness in the world. So make sure you do that. Brother Ishtar, thanks for being on the show. An honor to have you here. Uh, as always, it's just a lot of fun chatting with you, man. I'm really glad for our friendship. I'm very grateful. Thank you, uh, Nikki. The, the, the feelings are mutual. I literally learn from you every time we speak, and I truly, deeply enjoy our conversations. And I'll do this anytime you want to do this again. I'm, I'm open to that. So again, thank you for having me on the show and sharing, sharing, allowing me to share my knowledge with your audience. Oh, my pleasure. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's guest, the one and only Isar Matis, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or wherever you happen to listen to this podcast episode, be it Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or our friends at Audible. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.